Hello and welcome to the Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First up this week, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about Netflix's new engagement strategy, Jim Miller's new book about HBO, and the holiday box office in a very unusual year. Then Julia Yaffe will swing by to discuss my piece up this week about Kamala Harris and her murky political future and what happens if Joe Biden doesn't run for a second term. She'll also brief us on Vladimir Putin massing troops at the Ukraine border. Is he about to invade? Finally, I'll chat with Dylan Byers about Bob Chapek's plans to double down in a big way on Hulu and whether Joe Scarborough, the host of Morning Joe, is worth more than $30 million to MSNBC. These are the sort of great conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters with the best sources who really know what's going on. I hope you enjoy the powers that be. Hey everyone, joining me now on the powers that be is our man in Hollywood, Matt Bellany, who is actually our man in Jackson, Mississippi right now. How is it down there? It's nice visiting the in-laws. Got in a little golf today, uh, going to a Southern Steakhouse tonight. Couldn't be happier. That's lovely. You'll be there for the Egg Bowl on uh, Thursday night, I think. I will. I, I, uh, I'm in an Ole Miss household, so uh, we, will be rooting for, we will be rooting for Mississippi. The Land Sharks or the Rebels? The Rebels. The Rebels. <laughs> I know enough about them. I know enough to know that they are the Rebels. Um, they're actually pretty good this year. I was surprised. Um, they haven't had great success lately, but they're top 10. So oh, it'll be, yeah. be good. No, they're, I mean, they're a story in the SEC. I was making a joke though. Ole Miss like has been Johnny Reb forever. And then a few years ago, the actual mascot, like the thing that runs on the field, they changed to a land shark. Uh, as oh, a, that just went right over my head. <laughs> yeah, I only yeah. knew that they were the rebels because when I went to a game a couple of years ago, I was I was considering buying some merchandise and I thought maybe it was problematic and I did not buy the merchandise. If you were at the at the Grove for a tailgate, you would have noticed that no one really cares that they changed the mascot to the Land Sharks because everyone is still wearing Rebel gear. Uh, and some people are oh, actually that's a just, real thing. They are the, they are no longer they are no longer the Rebels. They are called the Rebels. That is true. But the actual mascot is no longer like a Confederate soldier with like a mustache and a big hat. The mascot. Oh, that's what is he was? a shark. Oh yeah. my. Yeah. <laughs> they had a Confederate soldier as a mascot. Yes. I'm out of my, I'm out of my league here. I, I know you are. I know you are. I'm, I'm educating you. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. We appreciate you though. My, anyway, my mas- my high school mascot was a Confederate soldier too. And they finally changed it a few years ago. Um, God bless. My high school mascot was the artists because I lived in an art town and uh, <laughs> I'm not joking. We like, they, they didn't even have a mascot on the field. Like, what are you going to do? Have a guy in a beret with a feather? <laughs> the artist is the worst sports mascot I've ever heard. <laughs> Except for the Rebels. Yeah. They changed it after I left. Yeah, good. Um, they're probably something lame now, like the Warriors and the Knights or something. No, they're, they're the Breakers. They're the Breakers, which is like generic and lame. Gotcha. I'll have to Google that when we're done here. But I do want to talk to you about Thanksgiving and what I think a lot of people will be doing over this holiday with or without their family, which is watching Netflix. And 
Netflix, the streaming behemoth, made a change uh, this week in their engagement measurement, which sounds very dorky, but uh, these are the metrics that uh, big media companies use to differentiate themselves from their competitors. Um, in the case of TV networks to command higher ad dollars. And in Netflix's case, what is this new metric that they're rolling out to prove that they are uh, the biggest streamer in the game? Right, because Netflix doesn't sell advertising. So, you know, for many years it argued, why should we release any kinds of rating information? That's our business. We don't need to, and, you know, we would like to not do that. And for a number of years, the talent in Hollywood said, okay, whatever, pay us what we think we're worth, and you guys can keep all that information to yourself. Slowly over the years, people realized, hey, you know, if we don't know how many people are watching our content, we don't know what you should be paying us. And maybe Netflix, keeping all this information to themselves, is giving themselves a better negotiation position and is not paying us what we're worth. So agents started to figure this out, especially as Netflix's stock started to go through the roof and people realized, hey, this is like a real company that's kind of eating the lunch of the rest of the Hollywood studios. So they started to demand more information. Netflix tried to release it sparingly, only when you know it benefited them, only when um, talent really demanded it. And it's become more and more common for Netflix to release information to the public and to the talent now. They used to use a metric that was sort of comically bad, and they called it a view, where if you watch something for as little as two minutes, it would count as a view. And anyone who's watched Netflix knows they have that annoying autoplay that immediately starts something, and when you're, you know, you're often searching around, you'll try things out and then say, oh, this is lame, I'm not watching this. That counted as a view. And people started to get wise to it. They just switched over to something called hours viewed or hours consumed. And that is an engagement metric that they say is a better gauge of how people are interacting with the service. For instance, they said that this movie that they released last week, Red Notice with The Rock and Gal Gadot and uh, Ryan Reynolds, they said that movie got about 150 million hours of engagement in its first five days, which is the biggest ever on Netflix, which is why they released it. So that's where we are now, where Netflix is releasing these weekly top 10 lists of movies and TV shows worldwide. They're doing it in 90 countries, and it's based on this hours viewed metric. I mean, that metric, I'm just confused by it because there's just nothing to compare it to, you know, like it feels like apples to oranges. Right. That's what people really want to know. They want to be able to, yeah, they want to be able to not just have some number thrown at them. They want to be able to do like the old Nielsen rating ratings where on linear television every morning you could see, oh, Seinfeld got 30 million viewers and, you know, the competition on CBS only had 19 million viewers. That was the old days of broadcast television. That's not the way that people consume television these days. They consume it on demand. So it's really difficult to make these comparisons. Um, Netflix can do it for its own content. They can say that Squid Game, for instance, was by far the most viewed around the world, and it wasn't even close. It was, you know, two, three times as many as the next viewed. 
that's somewhat helpful because you can see if you made Squid Game that it was tremendously valuable to Netflix. But try comparing Netflix to Disney Plus or to Hulu or to Apple TV, all of which have different numbers of subscribers around the world. Netflix has 214 million subscribers around the world. Disney Plus is far fewer. Hulu has even less. Apple TV doesn't even tell us how many people are subscribed to that. So it's really difficult to compare apples to oranges and figure out what is being consumed and how to compare it to each other. So what are other streamers saying about this, if anything? They're, they're keeping quiet. I mean, they like to be able to dole out information when it suits them. I mean, Hulu is the worst. Hulu <laughs> is the king of the meaningless press release where they put out these press releases that say, Vacation Friends is the number one original Hulu film to debut on the service. Okay, well, what does that mean? How many people actually watched it? Oh, you know, Only Murders in the Building is the number one original series on Hulu. Okay, great. What are the other ones you're comparing it against? And what are the actual numbers that it's beating? We have no idea. And, you know, that's been this game of, you know, the streaming services since the inception of Netflix when people started to ask questions as to who's watching what. They have played footsie and released stuff as it benefits them. And I think the talent, which really does want to know who's watching and when and what um, and where, they're getting fed up with this. and They're starting to look for answers. And Netflix at least is giving a little bit. Yeah, it feels like, it often feels like media companies release these things just for the press release. Yeah, no, that's the other element here. I mean, Netflix knows that it can get a, it can get a headline every week if it produces a top 10 list and whatever movie that they have marketed that week is going to be number one. You know, they're putting out stuff this week about how Red Notice is the number one movie in the world. OK, well, <laughs> yes, according to Netflix, we don't know anything else. Yeah, no, I mean, I coming from the world of, of broadcast and cable television, you know, you get these press releases that. This show won the demo, which means between the ages of what, like 18 and no, between the ages of, I don't even know what the demo means. (laughs) You get these press releases basically bragging that they won the demo or they had the most total viewers. And, you know, sometimes you like can click in to see what the actual numbers are and they're dismal. And sometimes they just keep the actual numbers out of the press release and just say that they won. So um, it's just for the for the PR score. Ratings have been a dark art for a long time and they've been spun by a lot of different people. The difference was in the Nielsen era, there was a baseline objective third party that people complained about, but it was something that everybody knew was the objective arbiter. And that doesn't exist in streaming. There are all kinds of different analytics companies that purport to have the best gauge of what Netflix viewership is actually like. Netflix, of course, says that's totally wrong. It doesn't account for X, Y, Z. And we're in this weird phase right now where I do think eventually a metric will come about that is industry accepted and that everybody uses, like the Nielsen ratings were accepted. Nielsen does streaming ratings and they use a minutes viewed metric, which is similar to what Netflix is doing. But it's not as widely accepted, and the others put out their own numbers. And, of course, they would all prefer to have their own numbers be the accepted metric because they control all that. 
And if you control the data, you control the negotiation with the people who make your content. Yeah, I mean, this this has been an issue in tech where advertisers want some consistency around what counts as a video view. And, you know, Facebook, I don't know the exact number, but like a couple of years ago, it was like three seconds counts as a view. And then that would be the metric that, you know, would count for advertisers. But, you know, YouTube and Snapchat and all the other companies would have to agree to a common metric, which would, you know, <laughs> give them less power. Sure. That, but that's in the advertising context, which in advertising, you have to have metrics released because that's how you're paid. And the advertisers need to have confidence in who's watching your content. In the subscription, non-advertising based content world, it's very difficult to get good metrics because the companies have little incentive to reveal that. Okay, I want to talk about something else, Matt, which is, speaking of another streamer, HBO slash HBO Max. Um, Jim Miller, who wrote The Great Oral Histories of CIA and Saturday Night Live, has a new book out about HBO. You've read it? What's in it? I have read it. I talked to Jim this week for an interview I did for Puck. It's really interesting. It's, it's, I think it's, a, it's among the, the best of the books that he has done. It's a thousand pages. So uh, if, you are, if you're not totally into this, it might be a little bit of a slog for certain parts. But you can just skip over the shows you don't care about. Uh, basically traces the history of HBO from the inception of a pay service for television uh, in the early 70s. Charles Dolan, the cable magnet who is a villain in new york city because his family owns the knicks yes he is (laughs) but yeah his his dream was a pay service that would show movies and exclusive sports sports were big in the early days of hbo oh yeah and uh it sort of evolved from there they didn't they didn't do original series right away but it evolved and hbo has been this weird asset because it's been sold and resold and been part of Time Warner, and it was then involved in one of the most notorious mergers in the history of corporate America and the AOL Time Warner merger in the early 2000s. That resulted in almost $100 billion of write-offs. Then it was you know, involved in this most recent sale where it went to AT&T as part of those same Warner Media assets. That didn't work. They, they tried to uh, have a theory that people would sign up for more wireless plans if you could get HBO Max with it. They then realized that wasn't working, so they spun it off to Discovery in a deal that is just now being reviewed by the government. But HBO has had this crazy history, and throughout it all, it has really survived by producing the best content. It has this unique ability to get the best shows for an elite audience that is willing to pay for it. And uh, it's really been the bread and butter of that company. And when you start to read, as I did throughout the history of HBO, all the different shows, starting with you know Larry Sanders' show, through The Wire, The Sopranos, Game of Thrones, Veep, I mean, all of these different, that's just the scripted stuff. In the documentary context, they've also done amazing work with like The Jinx and with some of the shows they did in the early 2000s. Like, it's a pretty amazing library of content that they've produced over the years. And that's, that's really what I came with away with it. Also, all the executives hated each other. <laughs> I want to get to that, but we've talked about this on the, on the podcast before, but HBO, at least for its big series has still maintained that 
Sunday night appointment viewing kind of programming. And, and, you know, at least in this household, it, it still works. I mean, you, you sit down on Sunday night to watch the latest episode of a show and then you got to wait till next week. And there's just like not another place, at least for me in the streaming universe where that happens. And it's because you can really be sure it's like a good record label for me. You know, if speaking of Mississippi, fat possum records puts out a new band, it's probably going to be good. I'm going to like it. And like HBO, like white Lotus came out and I was like, didn't know anything about it, but I knew it was probably going to be good. And there's certainly been some whiffs, but you're right. It's the content. And and on that note, when Miller talks to all the people involved in, in programming over the years, what, what do people point to as the first big hit for HBO in terms of scripted? Is it the Larry Sanders show? Is it Sex in the City? Is it The Sopranos? Is it Six Feet Under? Like, what was like the breakout show for them in that sense? Well, I mean, clearly, I mean, they've had several breakouts and, and different levels of acceptance. You can go all the way back to like Dream On in, you know, the, the late oh, yeah. 80s, early 90s. What we know is prestige TV and peak TV in that, that era. I think Larry Sanders was really transformational for that network because it was a uh, something that started to get awards attention. And that has really powered HBO. When you look at audience and what got people to tune in to HBO, it's got to be The Sopranos. When, when The Sopranos started running in 1999, um, it really kicked off the modern era of, you know, appointment prestige television on pay cable TV. And, you know, by the end of The Sopranos, they had just, they had ridden that wave of subscriber growth. And keep in mind, HBO is still considered a niche product. Uh, you know, it is not a big, all-encompassing every viewer out there. For as many people as yourself that love HBO, there are many that say, okay, I know what that is, and it's not for me. So, you know, that's been the big challenge for HBO heading into the streaming future and what allowed Netflix to really eat its lunch in the streaming world is that it's not for everybody. It is a brand, and they're really trying to broaden out that brand with the HBO Max product, putting things like Friends and Gossip Girl and things like that on there. It's like Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, said many years ago, we are trying to become HBO before HBO can become us. And there really is this desire for Netflix to be this brand while also being something that can appeal to a mass global audience of 215 million people and counting. You mentioned Red Notice on Netflix. Netflix is willing to, you know, with all due respect, like put a lot of slop up on the platform that's just sort of average and people will still watch it. And it's a volume game. Is there any indication from HBO or HBO Max, you know, unlike the Richard Plepler era that they are willing to water down the quality of their content, original content in order to get eyeballs? Or is it still going to be prestige moving forward in terms of originals? Are you saying that F-Boy Island is not prestige television? <laughs> I tried to watch F-Boy Island. Because uh, that's, that's on HBO Max. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I had to turn it off. They believe, HBO and, and Warner Media believes, that they can grow the subscriber base at HBO Max without sacrificing the HBO brand. Uh, I'm not so sure that they can do that without making the HBO Max product have a different name other than HBO. If it was just called 
Max or Warner Max or something like that. You could have HBO be a portion of that content. Um, but doing things like F-Boy Island and Gossip Girl under the HBO Max name, I think, does have a watering down effect on HBO. But you talk to people at HBO and they say that that's what enables them to do the quality stuff because you've got to grow. In this world, HBO could not survive as having 30 or 40 million subscribers. They want that thing to have 200 million subscribers. So if that's the goal, you've got to broaden it out. And if you do things like F-Boy Island to bring in regular viewers, that will provide money for the kinds of projects like White Lotus and Chernobyl that you know appeal to a more elitist audience, something like Succession. Yeah, and those could be discrete audiences too. I mean, like there could be people who just do appointment viewing for Succession and will never ever watch F-Boy Island and vice versa. Well, that was the case for Game of Thrones for many years. You know, they, they had an audience that would tune in for Thrones and then unsubscribe when the season was over. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, it was. I mean, they had huge churn problems on, on Game of Thrones. Um, and there was a real question when Thrones ended as to what those people who signed up for Thrones were going to um, were going to think when they didn't have that anymore. Um, you know, I think HBO creatively has managed to go to the next level and really provide a lot of great shows, different shows. And now they're doing at least one, but probably several Game of Thrones spinoffs that will premiere in the next few years. But creatively, I think HBO is really still firing on all cylinders. It's the business stuff that has the most interesting questions because they are trying to grow it under the HBO Max banner. And there, there's a lot of competition in that global streaming world. Before we let you go, embark on your riverboat cruise up and down the mighty Mississippi. Um, you you joke, but we are going to a riverboat <laughs> casino. My first time. Oh, cool! I've never done that. Never done that. Um, make sure you get some tamales though when you're cruising along the Delta. Doing that as well. Doing that as well. Good. The last thing I want to ask you: We're coming up on holiday movie season. Obviously, this is going to be a huge test for the industry generally. Uh, as it relates to will audiences come back to the theaters. We're seeing that a lot, but we're also approaching possibly a, you know, winter surge and coronavirus, who knows. But among all the movies coming out, and it seems like there's a lot, we have Spider-Man, House of Gucci, West Side Story. We have a Resident Evil movie. We have a movie called American Underdog, which appears to be about Kurt Warner. <laughs> which, which, which one of these movies is going to like, do the best at the box office. It's interesting because we're in this weird place where I think a lot of it will depend on the COVID situation. If we have a huge COVID fifth wave or whatever they're calling it spike, it's going to necessarily hurt movie theaters, but we've seen audiences kind of tentatively coming back over the past few weeks. Um, I think Ghostbusters opening with 44 million over uh, last weekend was a, a healthy sign. It wasn't huge as compared to some previous pre-COVID years. Uh, but for a 40-year-old franchise to generate $44 million in its opening weekend um, is a good sign. That film appeals to a mix of younger moviegoers and their parents. So one of the questions was, there were two groups of audiences that were most scared of theaters in the COVID era. Older moviegoers and super young, the kids who have not been vaccinated yet, which is why for most of these movies there's been that have been aimed at kids, there's been a at-home option 
where you can watch it at home on streaming or go to the theater. We've seen some decent numbers for the kids' movies in the last couple weeks, suggesting that vaccination of kids is helping. I think in some parts of the country, people are just kind of over COVID and are just kind of ignoring it. And it'll be interesting to see how the Disney movie Encanto does this weekend because it's getting a 30-day exclusive window in theaters. That's the one with songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's a big Disney animated movie. If kids come back to that, it'll be a good sign for the holiday movie-going series. Um, Spider-Man is going to probably be the biggest movie of the fall, perhaps the biggest movie of the year if you count the grosses into 2022. Um, but that's that's already generating a ton of pre-release in- interest. The big question I have is the Spielberg movie, West Side Story. The audience for that is older people, and older people have seemed to be the most reluctant to come back to theaters, uh, especially for dramas that are not kind of spectacle-oriented movies. We saw the Will Smith movie, King Richard, this past weekend do really poorly at the box office because it was also available on HBO Max. And older audiences, which are attracted to that kind of a drama, are likely going to stay home and watch it at home if they have that option. The West Side Story movie will only be in theaters. It has been held a year, and I think they're hoping that Older audiences come back to the theater for that. But if COVID is surging, not sure that's going to happen. Matt, we appreciate you, man. Thanks for your insight. And as we say down south, we appreciate you. All right. Bless your heart. Talk to you later. (laughs) Thanks, dude. Have fun. Coming up, I talked to Julia Yaffe about the Kamala drama in D.C. and whether Putin is about to make some noise in Ukraine. Stick around. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know. The real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is great. It's the day after Thanksgiving and you're listening to us instead of spending time with your family, aren't you? When you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters, to grow our business and pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at puck.news. Welcome back to the Powers That Be podcast heads. I'm joined now by Julia Yaffe, who is here as always to talk about this town, Washington, the district of disaster. Julia, I have a piece on puck.news up this week. Heard of it. Yes, you have. About Kamala Harris and the recent spate of stories that have started to percolate about the dissension and bitterness and drama inside of her office, uh, the perception among her loyalists and staffers that she isn't getting enough support from the Biden administration, that some of the criticism of her missteps is based on racism and sexism, um, and just her place in the Biden orbit and Washington generally. Uh, And this is sort of rooted in the fact that, you know, anyone who watched her presidential campaign uh, during the primaries in 2019 saw that despite being a possibly history-making figure, she wasn't that great on her feet on the campaign trail. She didn't have a message. She dropped out before Iowa. You know, afterwards, her staff spilled their guts in the pages of the New York Times blaming this person and that. And we're sort of seeing the same pattern unfold inside of 
her office right now. And I'm curious, you know, before talking more about that story, you know, just in D.C., what what are people saying at the bars, at the coffee shops on the street about Kamala Harris? Just, you know, what are the whispers about her generally among the professional political class there? Well, last time I went out pounding shots and talking about Kamala, um, (laughs) I'm kidding. Nobody here. Georgetown is awesome. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I've known kind of people around her for many years, even um, when she was in the Senate. And there was always that the reputation around her, this kind of reputational tale that her office was a mess and her campaign was a mess. And so it's kind of not surprising to me that these stories are coming out that her vice presidential office is a mess. And I don't know, like that, that it's, that it's disorganized, that there's a lot of infighting. And this was again, the story about her campaign and about her um, Senate office. And I don't know. On one hand, there's a there's a part of me that's like this town and this country loves stories about bad lady bosses, right? We loved stories about Jill Abramson when she was executive editor of the New York Times and, you know, how she said fuck in page one meetings and like how fucking horrifying. And uh, Amy Klobuchar, right, who like threw a stapler at somebody, right? But there's also so many stories in Washington about shitty male bosses on the Hill about shitty campaigns. Like, I don't know, you've read what it takes by Richard Ben Kramer. You know, Biden was a shitty boss. I wonder, like, you know, you, you wrote this piece. I'm, I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think to what extent is this, you know, like Bakari Sellers said that uh, the media is doing to her, to Kamala Harris, what they did to Hillary Clinton, the media and Republicans, which is like professional death by a million cuts. I'm wondering how much of that do you think is like true to what extent she's a bad boss and a, like a disorganized, like the head of a disorganized enterprise, whatever enterprise it happens to be. And how much of it is, you know, because the standards are higher because she's not just a woman, but she is a black woman and an Asian woman. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you think is the balance there? No, that's a really good question. First of all, I think the press kind of habituated itself after Obama in 08, after Hillary in 08 and 2016 to be more cautious about how they write about race and gender. Not that that has been solved or fixed by any means, but I think it flared a lot during Kamala's campaign for president because it was hard to say when Kamala had a stumble or a quote unquote gaffe in an interview Those are things that you didn't see from Elizabeth Warren, for example. And so if that was criticized either by a pundit or by gently by a journalist or by a Democratic background source, you know, the K-Hive, Kamala's Stan army on the Internet would come at that reporter and call them racist or sexist. So, you know, I think there is certainly a high standard that applied to Kamala during the presidential campaign. But, you know, I, I just thought the more obvious victim of sexism in that primary was Elizabeth Warren. Um, and the evidence for that is hundreds and hundreds of women voters on the record with journalists saying Elizabeth Warren is 
the most qualified, capable, and ready on day one candidate, and I want to vote for her, but I don't think she can win. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, voters decide, you know, whether whether Kamala Harris or her supporters thought she was a victim of bias during her campaign, she failed to move voters in her direction and barely made a blip in that campaign. And winners, winners win. <laughs> you know, Obama you know, was a man, not a woman, but like he won in spite of his, both because of and in spite of his race. But I think the things that are happening with Kamala right now are sort of, it's it's complicated. There's several layers to it. One, she came into office of the office of vice presidency, which is an office with limits, an office that historically doesn't do that much accompanied by all of these expectations that she made history. You know, what are you going to do? Well, you know, it turns out not much. You do what the president doesn't want to do or what the president tells you. Two, she is trailed by a history of caution, according to my reporting, in all of her offices in California, too, and her campaigns. Questionable staff management. Questionable on-her-feet political instincts. And so that's part of the drama. And then undergirding all of it is the fact that we're in this really weird situation where things in the country are pretty crap. Like there's a global pandemic. We are hopelessly divided as a country. Issues of racism flare every single day on the news, in courtrooms, in the streets. And President Biden is 79 years old and might not run again. And so there's this like enormous pressure all of a sudden on Kamala Harris, the first female person of color to hold that office. There's all the scrutiny on her in a way that there hasn't been vice president in, in recent memory. And her approval rating is about 38%. That's lower than every vice president since before Al Gore. She has a lower approval rating than Dick Cheney. Yeah. I looked it up. Her approval rating uh, it's 38%. Dick Cheney didn't dip into the 30s until his second term, kind of when Bush went down. And, that, and that's the other thing. Like Kamala's fate is yoked to President Biden's and President Biden goes down, Kamala goes down. She's still lower than he is. But, you know, if she runs for president, she will either be boosted or saddled by whatever Biden's legacy is. And this is another problem because... We don't know. Kamala's never really left a mark in terms of a clear ideology, a clear point of view, an issue. She's Her whole career is rooted in her time as a prosecutor, as a district attorney back in San Francisco, and then as attorney general. In both of those positions, actually, including attorney general, she couldn't be very outwardly political because of the legal ramifications of those jobs. And, you know, that made her a sort of cautious figure. And you know, she has policy. She had policy planks when she ran for president. Sure. But what were they? I don't even I don't even know. No one can. That's my point. The things you remember about Kamala's presidential campaign are and, and her vice presidential campaign are the videos of her stepping off campaign planes, wearing her Chuck Taylors, her calling Joe Biden on Election Day, saying we did it, Joe. And like she's there's an image of Kamala and the, her image is her identity and her identity is the message. And that's her challenge is, is that enough to be president one day um, because unlike Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, 
the finalists there in the in the primaries, like it was just unclear what she what she stood for other than I'm going to make history. So it's pretty fascinating. I mean, I think she's both a sympathetic figure, but there's also evidence that she has some political faults. You know, you said putatively she's going to be, you know, she might run whenever Joe Biden either decides not to run or is done serving his second term uh, at the age of 307. <laughs> you know, and the thing that I keep hearing around Washington, and, and for once I agree with this conventional wis- wisdom, is that if she runs, and especially if she in 2024, and especially if she runs against Trump, like she will get shellacked, like just destroyed. And I was wondering what what your thoughts were about that. I mean, especially given the fact that like we don't even know how she well, did people vote for Joe Biden in part because of her? You could argue that um, some of the, you know, African-American vote was in part because of her. But, you know, she was never we never saw how people could vote for her nationally. Right. Because she dropped out before the first caucus, the first primary. So I was wondering what you think about that, like what her what her chances are at the ballot box. And also just playing off the word putatively, I wonder to what extent it she has been punitively assigned issues like, geez, the, you know, the southern border and the immigration crisis. And, you know, what other horrible things has she been saddled with, you know, and to what extent is that just, you know, that's what you do when you're the vice president. You get the shitty issues that the president doesn't have time for. And to what extent is it, you know, she's kind of being set up to fail? Maybe not intentionally, but. Yes. So, well, just just to put some sweetener, or some seasoning on this <laughs> comment. Every time I think about saying or writing something critical of Kamala Harris, I think back to not Election Day, but the day election was the election was called for Biden and Harris. We did it, Joe. We did it. <laughs> it's my favorite gif. There was a clip on MSNBC or CNN and a reporter was in like Philadelphia or some swingy state, some swingy city and interviewing these Gen Z or millennial girls of color. Um, I think one was South Asian and one was black and they were crying, you know? And like, that's like a, real thing. And that that's sort of the, the notch in her belt when I talk about how powerful is the I- identity thing, especially, you know, in today's politics, when quote unquote identity politics is very powerful on both sides. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. But to answer your question about 2024, one, I think we do have to consider that is far more real of a possibility that Biden doesn't run than maybe we have thought over the last year. I mean, I don't think it'll be a question of like what his approval ratings are like or how he did in the midterms. I think Joe Biden just likes being in the arena, in the game. He's always has. He loves it. The question will be in the holidays after next year's midterms, no matter how they do, does he sit down with his family and say like, am I healthy enough? Am I fit enough? Am I spry enough to do this for another four years? You know, and it's another presidential campaign. That's a real question. So then it becomes if he doesn't run what the democratic primary is like. And that's the thing. It's like, there's no next in line. That's sort of well, like ostensibly this. It would be Kamala, right? Ostensibly sure. sure, sure. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, like vice president, that's the thing people say, but there hasn't really been a next in line for the vice president since Al Gore. Like Biden wasn't the next in line. Hillary was, you know, it's where the party sort of 
apparatus moves. You know, McCain was the next in line after Bush until he wasn't. And then he was again. Um, It wasn't Cheney. Uh, It's just, you know, whatever the factors at the time are. You know, I talked to one Kamala. I talked to plenty of her supporters. A lot of her uh, sources, or a lot of sources I talked to from her California days were supportive. But I talked to one very critical person who worked for her at one point. And this person said Kamala isn't going to scare off anybody in a Democratic primary. The only people she's going to scare off are donors who are worried that she can go the distance. <laughs> if she, if Biden steps aside, Kamala Harris isn't going to scare any other Democratic presidential contender away just because she's the vice president. You know, her challengers or opponents are going to look at her approval ratings. They're going to look at her political abilities. They're going to look at how much money she might have, and they're going to make that decision. And, you know, right now, based on that track record, there's no reason that Elizabeth Warren or Pete Buttigieg or someone we're not thinking of, like Phil Murphy, could run. Because at the end of the day, it's not us in the media that get to decide who the president is. It's the voters. And if her approval rating isn't great, and if she hasn't developed a succinct message or a rationale for running, which she didn't have last time. She might not even get to the point where Trump can shellac her. (laughs) Right. But, you know, past isn't prologue anymore in politics. It's just like we have to wait and see what the next couple of years hold. Yeah. It's interesting, though, like, well, you know, it's not quite the voters who decide who the next president is going to be. Right. It's like the people who show up to caucus in Iowa and then uh, some people in New Hampshire and maybe it gets to South Carolina. The but- whites of <laughs> Iowa yeah, and the yeah. whites of New Hampshire. <laughs> well. Biden won with, with, with South Carolina. Until South Carolina. Right, right. But, to you know, the what you said about Elizabeth Warren reminded me, you know, and what you were saying about the donors being concerned that she can go the distance. You know, to what extent is that a self-fulfilling prophecy? You know, if all these women are saying, I'm scared that nobody will vote for her and so I won't vote for her. Well, like, you know, either vote for her or don't vote for her. Like, don't base your vote on who's going to vote for her. Because if you do that, then nobody's going to vote for her. Right. And that that was a consequence, too, of in the Trump era and during that primary, everyone in the world suddenly discovered politics and everyone was a pundit and everyone's gaming out who could win and who couldn't win. And Warren... Well, and the stakes were so high, right? It was like, we gotta, we gotta kill this guy. Yes. Figuratively. And that's like, I mean, I talked, I talked to one female Democratic operative the other day. We we're just texting. And she and I both agreed that, that Warren was a more obvious victim of sexism than Hillary was in 2016 because it was provable for Warren based on what I said earlier. You had people on the record, Democrats, <laughs> women on the record saying, I can't vote for her because there was this atmosphere of a woman can't win, you know, and then it is a little less, it was harder to prove with Hillary because Hillary's unfavorables were as bad as Donald Trump's in that election. Like she, she had her own brand over the years. Some of that was rooted in bias against her gender, but some of it was rooted in just her personality and her message or lack of message. Anyway, it's an interesting debate. Some of these things are disprovable. Some are not. But I want to change the subject real quick to someone who is absolutely not a sexist, someone who believes in women's empowerment, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> Putin, uh, and I'm joking, but for people listening, Julia is um, an expert, not just in Russia, but Eastern Europe, because you are Russian. What is what is happening at the border 
with Ukraine. I mean, you wrote this week in your in your mailbag that there's a buildup of Russian forces on the Ukrainian border. Uh, Putin's obviously crossed said border in the past. <laughs> sure has. <laughs> yes, sure has. At a moment when the president is dealing with innumerable crises, both foreign and domestic, are we about to have a conflict uh, along the Russia-Ukraine border? Well, that's what everyone in that universe in the foreign policy and especially the kind of Russia universe is talking about this week. You know, to recap, Russia has massed about 100,000 people, military personnel at the border with Ukraine, both from the Crimean side and the northern side. And it has called up tens of thousands of reservists, which it has not done before. And there's concern. Basically, the U.S. seems to be freaking out that Putin is on the verge of invading, or they think he might invade in January, February from multiple fronts, including through Belarus, and that he would invade with air support. It's not really clear, though, if that's true. I mean, the the buildup is there, and, and that's always cause for concern, uh, given, as you pointed out, what Putin has done with Ukraine, which is try to dismember it and um, create a frozen conflict on its territory in part to have the politics be super ugly. And in part because, you know, NATO doesn't allow in anybody, any country that has territorial disputes. And that is one thing he has always wanted to not happen, to stop NATO expansion into to get too close to Russian borders. Anyway, what we don't know is what the hell he's doing this for. Is he going to invade? Is he just kind of rattling his saber or, you know, other thing guys do? <laughs> and we don't know. We don't know. And, you know, some people think that it's, and I think this is quite a credible theory. We saw this in March of April of this year. He did something quite similar, massed all these troops and military material on the border with Ukraine. And what happened was Biden called him and was like, hey, buddy, you want to talk? You want to talk this out? <laughs> and they scheduled their meeting with oh, uh, their bilateral meeting in Geneva. And Putin, you know, got his one on one with the president of the United States, showing that he was on the, you know, on the same tier and deserved a meeting like that. And Biden called him a worthy adversary. And right now you have people uh, like Putin's spokesman and the head of his National Security Council, who is a very terrifying dude, basically saying, talking about how they're going to have a, another bilateral but virtual summit with Biden before the year is out, which is like there's a month left. And Jen Psaki is like, sorry, what summit are we talking about? And so I think part of the Russia watching community, myself included, is wondering, like, is this just him trying to get invited to talk to Biden? Well, that's a question I have is that in my reading about Putin and, and following him, you know, he understands that Russia is no longer this global military superpower and not even like a hegemon. <laughs> they exercise their powers in different ways now, which is, you know, sort of these digital disinformation campaigns and psyops. They wreak havoc on the press in Russia. And by doing things like invading Crimea or going into Georgia back in the day, they do these little like piecemeal movements to both flex their muscle a little bit, 
rattle their sabers. <laughs> but they do it to sort of get attention from other leaders to be like, yo, I'm still here and I still matter. Let me come to your summit. And, and you know, Biden's a new president and Putin wants to stay on the radar and be relevant. And it feels I'm not again, I'm not the expert, but that this would feel of a piece with that pattern. And I think you very much have a point there. And also, you know, it's worth keeping in mind that Biden, when he was vice president, one of the shitty issues that he was saddled with was Ukraine. He was uniquely qualified to deal with that. Um, and this is Ukraine when Russia first invaded and annexed Crimea. And Biden was very kind of granularly involved. He was calling the Ukrainian president at the time several times a week and being like, hi, where are we on corruption? Like, sign this, do this, come on. He was unique, uniquely qualified to do that because he had, you know, been head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for many years and just kind of was known in that universe. And so I think he actually really, really cares about this issue. He really cares about Ukraine. He sees it as a kind of, you know, what, what it is. It's like this, it's stuck between Europe and the West and Russia and both want it in their orbit. Most of Ukraine wants to be in the West's orbit. Putin thinks it's not even a country. He doesn't think it's a real country and that it should be kind of part of the Russian heartland, even if not formally. And I think part of what he's doing is, like you said, flexing his muscles, but also keeping the pressure on Ukraine and through that, keeping the pressure on the West to say, you know, we can still invade this country, which compared to Russia is tiny. It's big for Europe, but small for Russia. We can invade. You don't really care enough to invade. I know you're not going to send soldiers here or, you know, get in a direct fight with Russia because that would be objectively rather dumb. He just wants it more. And the and he's kind of showing that, like, I want it more and I'm willing to fight you on this. And, you know, be careful what you do in Ukraine. That said, last time he did that in the spring, he really strengthened Ukraine's position and people in the West got you know, in Brussels and Washington and London got freaked out and started supporting Ukraine even more, both militarily and politically and economically. So he's not always, you know, a master strategist. But back to the question of, you know, why he's doing this, some people are worried, including Secretary of State Tony Blinken, are worried that much like the situation in Georgia in 2008, he's setting up a uh, a situation of such high pressure that any misstep by the Ukrainian side he could use as uh, an excuse to invade, which is what he did in Georgia in 2008. Because technically, the Georgians attacked the Russians first, even though the Russians kept provoking, provoking, provoking. And then the Russians were like, oh, you fired at our peacekeepers. Game on. So that's I think that's what people are worried. I personally don't think he's going to invade. I think you're right. I think he kind of you know, he wants to be noticed. He wants to be invited to the table. He wants to be dealt with. And I think that, you know, we all used to say that Russia is no longer a superpower. Russia is no longer even a power. Obama called it a regional power, which from what I heard, (laughs) pissed Putin off to no end. Like it was one of the things that pissed him off the most, like more than getting kicked out of the G8, more than the sanctions. It was that Obama called him a regional power. And I think since then, he's actually shown that Obama was wrong. He has basically 
filled the space where we have withdrawn in the Middle East. Look at what he's done in Syria. Look at what he's doing in Libya. Um, the Russians are all over Africa. You know, they're all over Europe. They're trying to split up Spain. You know, they're, they're messing around in the Balkans. They're poisoning people with, you know, and like, obviously some of it is asymmetrical, but it does real damage. Like, look at what happened after they uh, hacked the DNC servers, right? Like chaos in the American political system. And even if it's asymmetrical, it's still like, it's a real, he does real damage and he has figured out a way to flex his muscles that may look like you know, a regional power just trying to get noticed. But some of it is like, no, that's real. That's like, you're, you're, he set out to make Russia a global player again, and to be a counterweight to America on the world stage. And he's kind of succeeded in part because we've retreated. That was a long way of saying that Mitt Romney was right. Russia is our biggest geopolitical <laughs> I hear that all the time from Republicans in Washington. I'm sure you They're do. like, he was right though, right? You're going to give it to me? <laughs> uh, what could have been? Secretary of State Mitt Romney. All right, Julia, thank you for that primer. Honestly, I would love to talk to you about Russia every week. That stuff is fascinating. Coming up next, we will talk to Dylan Byers about why Joe Scarborough thinks he deserves to earn $30 million a year. That's right. 30 mil. Can I talk to somebody at Puck about getting that much? Are you worried that we're all going to end up one day in the metaverse? Or that Netflix is going to eat all of Hollywood? Or that the biggest private equity companies will use their combined $1 trillion in dry powder to colonize Mars? Don't be. Just read Puck. You'll know what the experts are talking about privately. Puck, we're the inside conversation out loud. Welcome back to the powers that be. Joining me now is media savant and area handsome dude, Dylan Byers. <laughs> I'm a savant now. Yeah, you are. <laughs> Provocateur slash savant. Dylan, I want to talk to you about Joe Scarborough wanting a shit ton of money for a show that not that many people watch. But first, I want to talk to you about Hulu. Yeah. Matt and I talked earlier on the pod about the never-ending rivalry between Netflix and HBO. And then, you know, there are all these other streamers out there among them, Disney Plus and Hulu, both of which are owned by Disney. That's right? Yes, that's right. So you have a piece up on Puck this week about Disney CEO Bob Chapek and have been talking to insiders at Disney and Hulu about what the strategy might be to catch up to those other big names. I mean, Hulu obviously has had some celebrated shows, uh, Handmaid's Tale, Chief Among Them, but it still doesn't have as many viewers in any way, let alone awards, as some of these other platforms. So what's his, what's his strategy for Hulu? Or what should he be doing for Hulu? Well, so here's a, let me let me set the scene just a little bit here, which will be familiar to some folks who are listening, but not everyone. Disney Plus, right out of the gate, which is now about two years old, has been a remarkable success. And the company did a wonderful job and I think surpassed everyone's expectations in terms of how fast they were able to grow that streaming network and really demonstrate that because of the assets that they have for children, and families, and then also for 
Marvel and Star Wars super fans that they could really compete at that level. And now they've hit this point where they are plateauing, or at least they seem to be plateauing. And so there is a question that is sort of engulfed Disney and engulfed Hollywood generally, which is what sh- what can Disney do to keep growing? And the obvious answer would be like, okay, well, what do you what do you not have? You don't have all of the content that we think about when we think about Netflix, HBO Max, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, which is you don't have adult content. You don't have uh, the, the the shows that Peter that you and I want to watch, or that anyone who works at Puck wants to watch. And the, their fear is that well, we can't do that because the Disney brand is so sacred. And once you start muddying the waters with, you know, adult oriented content with adult themes, some of it will be good. Some of it will be bad. You really tarnish the Disney brand. And that, and that is a, as far as brands go in the history of American media, that is a very powerful brand. Now Hulu has been over here existing, but it has never really been able to take off uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is that it was owned by a number of different companies. And even to this day, Disney only owns two thirds of it and Comcast owns the other two thirds. So all of these things that you would normally do to build out a streaming service, invest heavily in the content, uh, uh, really try to compete with Netflix, go global. These things haven't really happened because until Disney has 100% ownership of it, they don't really want to bring it to its full potential. But now Disney is getting to this point where they have to continue to show growth at Disney Plus. Otherwise, the street is going to panic. It's why Disney, one of the reasons why Disney Disney stock is as low as it is right now. And so the, the sort of fix for all this is, okay, what if we invest heavily in Hulu and throw a bunch of money at Hulu. And what one source familiar with the matter told me is that's going to be as much as $7 billion annually, which is crazy because in the past, I think they've spent something like two to $3 billion annually and build this up into a really robust streaming network in its own right. And then later down the line, when it's more palatable to consumers, we can sort of blend these things together, blend Hulu and Disney together into one offering. And I don't just mean a bundle, because right now you can get Disney plus Hulu, ESPN plus as a bundle. But I actually mean that Disney plus and Hulu become one service. The family friendly content lives on the Disney side of, of, of that single service. The adult oriented side lives on the Hulu side of that single service. But then all of a sudden, you're sending a signal to the market or to the street, which is, no, we don't just have 115, 120 million subscribers, but we're going we're going to 225, 250 million subscribers, which are the targets that they've set for themselves. And so I think I think that that makes a lot of sense. And if and if all of this is real, and if they do in, indeed start to spend all of that money on it, we might start talk. We might start putting Hulu in the conversation as a serious streaming network in its own right. But we, you know, we'll have to remain. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, so two quick questions. So just to repeat, Disney owns two-thirds of Hulu. The rest is owned by Comcast yes. slash Cable Town, <laughs> which uh, – and you write in your piece, Disney can't make these investments and these changes until 2024 when they can buy out the rest of Comcast. Is that is that the plan that they're definitely going to do that? Yeah, yeah. So this is what's really interesting. And this is so convoluted and, and sort of just, it's farcical. Disney and Comcast have come to an agreement that Disney will buy out the remaining stake from Comcast. 
in 2024 for a minimum amount of money. And there, so there's a, there's a floor, there, there's at least X amount of money that Disney will pay. But if Hulu is like humming and let's say Hulu is a real player and it's got, uh, and it's global, then all of a sudden, whatever that number is, is going to be significantly higher. And so Disney's in this weird place where they're thinking as a part of a long-term strategy, we should grow Hulu and we should turn Hulu into a really robust business. But as a short-term strategy, we don't want to pay Comcast more money than we need to, to take full ownership of this service. And so they're somewhat hamstrung here. And I think the reason why we're having this conversation now is because when they could say to the street, look over here at Disney plus this thing's growing like gangbusters, like we're, we're great. Everything's good. That's fine. But now that the Disney plus numbers are starting to plateau, everyone's saying, okay, well, what are you going to do? And the, the answer is almost certainly Hulu, but they don't, again, they don't want to build it up too fast until the, until they've taken full ownership of it. And that's a, that's a, that's a terribly awkward place for a business to be because you can lose a lot in the span of, if you don't put your bets foot forward for two years, because you don't want to have to spend too much money to buy this thing, you can lose a lot of time and a lot of ground. And, and, and also just like the, the strength of the brand can suffer because that's two more years where people aren't associating Hulu with, you know, being a must have subscription service. So I think they're going to, I think they're going to have to start making these investments sooner rather than later. And I think come the latter half of next year, we're going to start to see some real investments being made in, in terms of, in terms of original content on Hulu beyond what we have today. So my other logistical question then is if these two companies, Disney and Hulu were to merge in a more fundamental way than a bundle. Does that mean that the two companies would share president and financial teams and development? Oh yeah, they people? already do. No, no. So Disney, oh, okay. yeah, Disney controls Hulu. It's just that gotcha. 33% of Comcast has this 33% stake in it. But, but, you know, but there are all these other complications. I mean, there, there's like, you know, Disney has a linear television business in both ABC and in cable channels like FX. And so, for instance, right now, the president, not the president, but the head of original content for Hulu is simultaneously responsible for ABC Entertainment, which should give you some indication of how little of a priority Hulu has been to date. So when you think of when, when you and Bellany or you and I talk about Netflix or HBO Max or things like that. We are talking about places where there is an all hands on deck effort to grow those companies and make them strong and make them better. That's happening at Disney plus. It's just, hasn't been happening at Hulu to date. And we've reached that moment in which it really needs to start happening. If Disney is going to continue to grow its streaming business. Gotcha. All right. So where does, where does ESPN plus fit into this whole scenario? I'm so glad you asked (laughs) because a few weeks ago I reported that, Disney has started to seriously explore whether or not it's a good idea to spin off ESPN, the entire business. And they, their argument here is no ESPN, you know, we're building out ESPN plus it's a key part of that bundle that includes Disney plus and Hulu. We see live sports as having a big future for the company and it's integral to what we do, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is, is that, Since the day I reported that, the more folks I've spoken to who have some 
line into Disney or some perspective on how this is happening, I have grown more confident that Disney will indeed spin off ESPN at some point. And so, yeah, so when you think now, that doesn't mean they won't own it or own a part of it or be able to take money from it. It just won't be part, it'll be a separate business from the Disney business. So if you look at the future of the landscape, of the streaming landscape, right now you've got three different things bundled into one, Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus. If Hulu is the vehicle that gets you adult viewers to add to this powerful core of, of family viewers and, and Marvel and Star Wars super fans, you can unite those and turn those into one streaming service and offload ESPN and effectively let it be a standalone business over here that's managed by someone else that can be associated with a sports book so you can start to leverage all of the money that you can make from gambling uh, and, and, from, and from sports betting. And then you've got something that, well, not in Disney and Hulu, well, not as pure as and, and, and pristine as the Disney brand itself is at least something that sort of makes sense in the way that Netflix makes sense. Something that basically offers entertainment programming in, in Disney's case for both children and adults. And that becomes a very sort of pure and obvious business to put forward to the street. And so I think that is there a future where Disney could keep ESPN in the bundle and say, hey, we have live sports? Sure. But that's really complicated. And, and for a while, that keeps you tied to a linear business that's really hard hard to sort of navigate the shift to streaming. And so my feeling is that they probably will spin off ESPN. And then you're and, and in the future, that'll be a different company. And then you'll have a Disney Hulu single streaming service that you subscribe to. Yeah, they're just they would just fundamentally be different kinds of businesses, different kinds of programs. They would be. Yeah, content. entirely. Yeah. Speaking of live viewing, you also reported uh, a few days ago that uh, Joe Scarborough, the host of Morning Joe, his contract is coming up soon. And this comes as MSNBC is dealing with a real talent problem. Um, you know, Rachel Maddow is still in the family, but she negotiated a, a, a pretty big deal that would allow her basically to leave her show and get into more creative programming and podcasts, et cetera. Brian Williams has left, you know, and this is also, you know, kind of existential because MSNBC and then also CNN, which is, you know, left-leaning network in primetime now are losing a lot of viewers without Trump in office. And so Scarborough is, uh, you know, according to two sources um, that told you this, he wants $30 million plus one. Does that sound petty to you? Uh, no comment. Um, in part because he wants to be the highest paid talent at MSNBC. And just as a punctuation mark to that, it should be noted that his co-host and wife, Mika Brzezinski, authored a book called Know Your Value. And Scarborough apparently knows his value. Maybe. Maybe he didn't read it. This is my question. Yeah. Morning Joe, you know, in November was averaging around 790,000 viewers. Let's be generous. 800,000 viewers. Total viewers. Mm -hmm. um, in the quote unquote coveted demo between the ages of 25 and 54, that advertising demo, much smaller than that. Um, these are really small numbers. I mean, obviously compared to the streamers, compared to um, shows and content on YouTube, Snapchat, Facebook, whatever. We, we've talked about this for years, Dylan. Like there, there's this really weird mismatch in cable news between 
the size of the audience and the salaries that these big name talent are commanding. Why is that? Obviously, these viewers are to advertisers valuable. They're more educated, high income people with more money to spend. They're the ones watching Morning Joe. Um, so maybe Scarborough can command a premium salary like that. But $30 million, I mean, like that's like superstar professional athlete money. Yeah. I mean, you, you, like you said, you and I have discussed the state of the business and the, the trajectory that it's on. And it's not great. And we can all name every social media service, every other kind of platform that where we're a hell of a lot more people are tuning in. But cable news is an extremely lucrative business. Part of the reason it's lucrative is because a certain amount of people watch. And when you start talking about Rachel Maddow level programming or Fox News primetime level programming, uh, it's not an insignificant amount of people at all. But it's also a lucrative business because purely by existing, anyone with a cable package ends up paying for it through sub fees. And so if you're sitting at the perch of a company like NBC, if you're Jeff Shell, yes, not that many people are watching MSNBC any given day, but just having the network there and having it going and having it be a part of the cable package is a lucrative business. And so you have to keep it competitive. And MSNBC, to the degree that it's been competitive at all recently, has in large part Rachel Maddow to thank for that. And they've also, not just do they have Rachel Maddow to thank for it, they don't really have many other people to thank for it. And so when Rachel Maddow is like, my God, I'm so, I'm so much bigger than this primetime cable news show. I don't actually like the grind of doing a show every night. I'm going to go do something else. Maybe someone else would have paid her 20 or $25 million to do that. NBC is in this position where they can't afford not to keep her in the family. And so they pay her, they give her $30 million a year just to keep her because the thought of what MSNBC becomes with no affiliation to Rachel Maddow is really scary for them. And I think it doesn't really, you know, paying her more to have her work less doesn't solve the problem of the fact that she's not going to be hosting that primetime show and you have to figure out what you're going to do there. And there aren't a lot of great options, but you know, at least MSNBC is still Rachel Maddow's network and that carries some weight. And I think the question is, is anyone else worth that? Does anyone else do that for NBC? And I think that I don't know if Jeff Shell thinks that Joe Scarborough does, but I know that Joe Scarborough thinks that Joe Scarborough does. And I know that he feels in light of Rachel Maddow's incredibly high new salary, he feels emboldened to say, okay, wait a second. I host a show three hours every single morning. And the political conversation in Washington, a lot of that still runs through Morning Joe, a lot. I disagree with you on that. <laughs> That's fine. I mean, and, I, and, and, you know, honestly, I'll say you pay more attention to politics still than I do, but, yeah. but it's a show. It, it is, it is a force. And, and the best way to think about the cable news landscape, because so often we get tied down in questions of, of partisanship and, and po the politics of the networks strip away right wing, left wing, pro Trump, anti Trump, strip away everything. And just think about it this way. Who is making, and not good or great television, because that's subjective, who is making distinctive television? Who are personalities on cable TV who are like in the culture, who are kind of household names? 
Rachel Maddow, definitely. Tucker Carlson, definitely. Sean Hannity, definitely. Joe Scarborough is at least up for debate in a way that everyone else who I haven't named isn't. And so he, he, I think he recognizes that he is an outsized personality, that he is a force, that he does a three-hour show every morning, and that he has definitely not Rachel Maddow's following, but he's got some sort of He's sort of important to the network, and he's the reason that MSNBC's mornings are stronger than CNN's mornings, and that unless you're part of the Fox family, like that's usually where you're going to land if you're someone who, who watches cable television or political television in the morning. And I think, he, I think he feels like he has leverage because MSNBC is, is a network without a deep bench and a network without a lot of vision right now. And so he's kind of here saying, well... You know, with Maddow off of, of nightly programming and with Brian Williams leaving and all this, like I'm sort of I'm sort of what you got left. And fortunately for him, he has the same agents that Rachel Maddow had. And they're going to be able to sort of, I think, squeeze MSNBC for a significant amount of money. 30 million. I don't know. Maybe not. But more than he's making now, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, speaking of leverage, I mean, Joe is represented by Ari Emanuel and Mark Shapiro. You called them ruthless. I think that's fair. Um, you know, in I will say in MSNBC's defense in terms of leverage, you know, they have and I remember when this happened, like 2006, seven, they sort of stumbled into this on air chemistry with their cast of characters on Morning Joe and let it ride. And that's hard to replicate that kind of like on air chemistry and that sort of like family feeling if you're a viewer chemistry was so good they got married <laughs> yes the definition of chemistry <laughs> yeah it's you know it's hard to see where where that could be cut and pasted though like you know if if i, I don't think he would ever do this but like if jeff zucker just like did a smash and grab and said come to cnn would they just like do the same thing on cnn like there's only there's a limited amount of places you can take the shtick totally that's totally right there's sort of only one other place you can take the shtick, really. But that said, it's not it's not really a question so much of the calculation, I think, for for MSNBC right now is not so much does the competition have it, it's do are we losing it? Do we not have it? And if we don't have it, what do we have? Because the combination of Chris Hayes and Lawrence O'Donnell at night, coupled with like daytime left of center political coverage and a, a morning Joe-less morning is not a terribly valuable news network. Mm -hmm. Well, let me, let me ask you this uh, and then I'll let you go, but I get asked a lot having worked at CNN, how much certain famous anchors get paid. And like, I often don't even know the answer. Like the salary numbers are pretty opaque. It's not like, the NFL or, you know, they announce a deal necessarily like is $30 million typical for no. like a, either a broadcast or a cable anchor. Like how much does like Anderson Cooper make? How much does David Muir make? Do you know the answer to these questions? Yeah, no, I don't. <laughs> and I should have figured it out what I do know is that everyone's every, everyone to, to bring this conversation full circle is that when you look at the economics of the industry, everyone is making too many people are making too much. Like you, if you look, since you brought up David Muir, if you look at ABC, the three hosts who host ABC, uh, Good Morning America, I think between the three of them, you're looking at around 
60 million a year. And I'm, I'm sure I'm off on that in one direction or the other, but, but ballpark, that's right. And so at that rate with the, with viewership in decline, you're starting to, you're starting to not be able to justify spending that much money on people. Now, when you talk about the 30 million that Rachel's making, first of all, to hit 30 million, there's certain incentives she has to meet. And she's also going to be producing all sorts of different kind of content that is going to fuel the larger NBC family, including its streaming efforts. But again, your value in this business is really just depends on what someone on, on how on, on how valuable you are to a company or a business, depending on where they are and what they need and what they can afford to lose. And and that is the position that MSNBC is in now. So is 30 million high? Yes, it's crazy high. And I, it's not just that I don't think Joe Scarborough is worth 30 million. I don't, I'm not sure Rachel Maddow is worth 30 million. But when you think about how much money Comcast has, and Comcast owns NBC Universal, honestly, I'm surprised that, that uh, Ari Emanuel and Mark Shapiro didn't ask for like 35, because they probably could have gotten 35. It's just stupid money. And it doesn't feel sustainable to me. But I think, but here's the other thing. I think that Maddow... The other key thing that Matt Al realized is that once you break through that threshold where you are a household name with a massive following, in this new landscape where there are streaming services and where there are all different sorts of platforms you can play on and you can have shows and series and you can produce series and you can do podcasts and all of this, staying in the ecosystem of nightly news, you know, nightly cable news programming isn't really where you want to be. You actually want to be in a place where you can pursue all sorts of different projects and the investment that is being made is just in you and whatever you want to do. And it's similar to the way the deal that Netflix has with the Obamas or with Harry and Meghan. And I think she saw that opening and she seized it. And I think NBC saw an opportunity to pay a lot of money to keep her in the family. And, and, and they really didn't have any other choice. You know, not to get all succession here, but... <laughs> Executives, a lot of times, whether it's in media or other businesses, are are willing to pay that money just so they don't have another problem to think about. You know, it's like sure MSNBC well, has yeah or things to do and things to worry about and people to hire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like that, it, he, Scarborough and, and presumably Mika would be the the people that got away from Jeff Shell. Um, yeah, that's the other, you know, that's exactly right. And the and the other thing to think about is every every media executive is also thinking about their own legacy. Jeff Shell got to his job at the top of NBC not that long ago. He appointed Caesar Conde to run the NBC News Group not that long ago. If the first thing these guys become known for is their inability to keep Rachel Maddow at the network, that is not a great look for them. And so when they're dealing with Brian Roberts' monopoly money at Comcast, Sure. 30 million. Great. Let's do 30 million. That way I don't look like I screwed up and you're happy and we get to maintain the status quo and try and figure out what we're going to do now that we've just paid you to stop doing your nightly show. And the, the only other thing I'll say too is the cable news industry viewership is on the whole in decline on a downslope. However, the ebbs and flows to change. And, you know, I, you and I are old enough to remember when Obama came into office and MSNBC and CNN viewership went down and Fox went up and then vice versa. And we will have another president at some point. We don't know if it'll be a Democrat or Republican, but yeah. the ups and downs do change. So right now, yeah, MSNBC is is down, but, you know, those numbers could 
come back up in two or three years and they always go up during election years. Yeah, they always go up during election years. But I would say that the general like climate change, the average sea level (laughs) (laughs) continues to change. And 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 the other thing I would say is that, you know, look, Fox News. Yeah, it does it do better when a Democrat's in office because it's the opposition. Sure. But actually, Fox News is sort of much more consistent than these other networks because Fox News is is, is in many ways the home for the right. And the truth is, is that on on the left, there are actually much more options, and the, and you've got people who are who don't really spend as much time watching cable news or don't lean on cable news as much, and and you have a proliferation of media, both media where you can get political news and media just where you can spend your time doing something else. And so, you know, yes, yes, will will MSNBC's fortunes ebb and flow? Yes, but I think the general trajectory for them, short of finding a you know rock star talent that can really like command the attention of of audiences to a degree even greater than Rachel Maddow had. I think short of that, I think they're really facing a little bit of an existential crisis. I just, I just broke character and principle to go out of my way to play devil's advocate to defend the cable news industry. (laughs) Obviously my perspective got eviscerated. I've never heard you do that, Peter. (laughs) Um, Thanks for checking me. All right, Dylan, uh, hope you have a good holiday weekend. Um, We'll see you next time. Okay, man, you too. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby. Happy Thanksgiving, and I will see you next week.